Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us, that you would be with us, that you would teach us, and that we would experience your hope. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Uh, it's a, a rough piece of history, but the story goes something like this. In the late 1800s-ish, uh, in a mental institution outside Boston, a young girl known as Little Annie was locked in what you could only consider a dungeon. Uh, the dungeon was the only place, said the doctors, for those who were hopelessly insane. In Little Annie's case, they saw no hope for her, so she was consigned to living in that small cage which received little light and even less hope. About that time, an elderly nurse was nearing retirement. She felt that there was hope for all of God's children, so she started taking her lunch into the dungeon and eating outside little Annie's cage. She felt perhaps she could communicate some love and hope to this little girl. In many ways, little Annie was like an animal. On occasion, she would violently attack the person who came into her cage at other times uh, she would completely ignore them. When the elderly nurse started visiting her, little Annie gave her no indication that she was even aware of her presence. One day, the elderly nurse brought some brownies to the dungeon and left them outside the cage. Little Annie gave no hint that she even knew they were there, but when the nurse returned the next day, the brownies were gone. From that time on, the nurse would bring brownies when she made her Thursday visit. Soon after, the doctors in the institution noticed a change was taking place. After a period of time, they decided to move little Annie upstairs. Finally, the day came when the hopeless case was told she could return back home. But little Annie did not wish to leave. She chose to stay to, to help others. And it ended up being Annie who cared for, taught, and nurtured Helen Keller. For little Annie's name was Anne Sullivan. The very same teacher who held on to hope for Helen Keller had herself received hope from someone else when she had no hope of her own. Now, obviously, this is an extreme case of hope lost and hope found, not to mention apparently I'm on a Helen Keller kick at the moment. I don't know quite why these stories are lining up like this, but, but here's the thing. All cases of someone being without hope and someone carrying hope on their behalf are extreme cases. And yet, being the person or the people who hold hope for someone who can't, has the power to change everything. Which begs the question, could we be the kind of people who don't just give hope, but hold on to hope, not just for ourselves or even others, but for those who have lost their hope? While we think about that, let me back up a little bit and remind us where we are and where we're going. In our current series, we're trying to figure out and understand what it means for us to be disciples. And we began by recognizing that innately, disciples are working to become more like their rabbis, more like their teachers, which is why disciples spend so much time with their rabbis, so that they can learn what they know 
so that they can model what they do, so that they can experience what they feel, so that they can emulate their rabbis better. That's, that's the goal. Of course, this is also what we see in Jesus' disciples. They're listening and learning from Him, practicing what they see Him do, working to know Him better, so that they can become more like Him. In the same way, modern disciples listen and learn, practice and pray, work and worship, so that we can become more like Him as well. But of course, for that to happen, we have to spend more time with Him. We have to pay better attention to Him so that we can hear what He's teaching, so that we can model what He's doing, so that we can experience what He's feeling as we follow Him and strive to become more like Him. Because, of course, again, the goal of the faith isn't to be more Christian or to act more Christian or to make more Christians. The goal is discipleship, becoming more like Jesus, acting more like Jesus, helping others become more like Him as well. We follow Him so that we can be transformed and so that we too can become more like Him. And so if you would, I would invite you and encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Math, uh, Mark, not Matthew, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Mark 5, 21. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that we've seen how we are to be following and bringing people to Jesus. We've seen how we are to be leading with compassion like Jesus does. How we are to be restoring people and helping them see Jesus and how we are to be bringing peace and quiet and calm and restoring people. Last week, we saw how Jesus calmed the storm and restored the man with the legion of demons. This story today picks up right after that. So let's see what happens. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see, the people crowding around against you, his disciples answered, and yet you asked, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. 
Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. Our story today picks up right after the last one left off. Jesus, uh, again, had gone to the other side of the lake. Now he comes back, and again, there's a crowd. He just can't seem to get away from them. And then Jairus, a synagogue leader, think president of the synagogue, comes to Jesus and falls at his feet pleading with him. And while this is an unusual reaction for a person of prestige, it's a relatively ordinary response from a parent whose child is dying. And when Jesus hears the situation, he heads towards Jairus' home. Of course, it's not like the crowd just disappeared because all these people still are around and they still all want a piece of Jesus. And so Jesus is being slowed down and hampered by this huge crowd of people. But he presses on, pushes forward, wades through. Amidst the crowd, there's a woman who also needs help. And she's needed help for 12 years. And yet every time she's sought help, things have only gotten worse. But then there's this rabbi, maybe even a messiah, and her hope is rekindled one last time. And so she also fights through the crowd and reaches out just wanting to touch the edge of his cloak. Now, we've got to leave the story here for just a second so I can give you a little background into what she's thinking about touching his cloak and how that might heal her. We talked about this a long, long time ago, but in the book of Numbers, uh, the Israelites are told that they are to wear tassels on the corners of their garments to help them remember the, the commandments. So every time, kind of tying a, a string on your finger. Why did I tie the string on my finger? To remember that I needed to get eggs from the grocery. It's one of those kind of things, except more permanent. So you would just put tassels on the edge of your robe, and that would be a constant reminder of the commandments. These corners in the Hebrew is the word kanafs. Uh, they mean corners, tassels, wings, fringe. Later in the Psalms, David prays to God, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings, your kanafs, your fringe, your hem. Now, as these things go over history, the fringe then started to get fancier and fancier and fancier, all the way to downright elaborate. And as one commentator remarked of the hem, its significance lies not in its artistry, but in its symbolism as an extension of its owner's person and authority. So, this hem, these wings, were an extension of someone's person and power. 
Then, fast forward the story all the way to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, Malachi writes of the Messiah that there will be healing in His wings. Obviously, he's not saying that the Messiah will have wings. He's using the word kanafs. He's using the word tassels or hem or edge. There will be healing in the hem of His robe. So, if this is the Messiah... There should be healing in the corner of his robe because it's an extension of who he is. It's an extension of his authority, of his authority and of of his person and of his power. And so our desperate and hurting woman reaches out toward Jesus to touch the edge of his robe. And as she finally grasps it, she's healed. Only he knows. Because he stops, and he turns around, and he starts trying to find her. And you can imagine her her fear. What if he's mad? What if he's upset? What if he takes his healing power back? While he's looking for her, the disciples, always pragmatists, point out that Jesus may not be able to discover who touched him since everyone's touching you. Uh, I mean, you are Jesus, but this is one of those needle and haystack issues. So just let it go. And it's at this point that the woman, knowing she'll be found out eventually, steps forward and reveals what she did and what's happened. And you have to marvel at Jesus' response, which is beautiful. He calls her daughter. This woman who has suffered, this woman who has been ostracized, this woman who has for so long been without hope, is healed, is restored, is loved. And Jesus helps her see that it's her faith that has saved her. And He invites her to go in peace, having been set free. What a great ending to our story and to our passage. Except it's not. Because we all get so caught up in this second side story, we forget where we were going in the first place. And we're jarred back into the reality of our first story when someone comes from Jairus' house with the very bad news because it ends up it's too late. Jesus is too late. The girl has died, and along with her hope. But Jesus is here, and Jesus invites Jairus to believe, to not fear, to trust. Jesus invites Jairus to keep hoping. They keep going, and when Jesus arrives at the house, there's all of the grief and lament that you would expect, but Jesus sees a different reality. And he enters in, and he takes the little girl by the hand, invites her to get up, and she does. And all are amazed. That's what happens. But the question becomes, what do we do with this? I mean, just like last week, Jesus' actions here are pretty miraculous. And so, while it'd be nice to say that we are becoming more like our rabbi, most of our clothing doesn't have healing properties. And most of us, to my knowledge, are a little deficient when it comes to raising people back from the dead. And so, at first blush, becoming more like Jesus in this passage may just need to be left to Jesus. And yet, there is something in this passage that we may be able to emulate as we strive to become more like Him. 
And for me, the thing that stands out the most after, after the miracles is how Jesus seems to give hope to people who have lost it. How he seems to be able to hold on to hope for those who can't keep it. I'm even just struck by the way that we talk about hope like that, that hope is given, that hope is held, that hope is kept, that, we can, that you can hold hope, that you can give hope. It's almost like most of the time things are going okay enough, and you can kind of hold on to your own hope, but then there's those other times when we just don't have the strength to keep it. But sometimes in these darker times, there are others around us who can hold on to hope on our behalf. And I think we see Jesus doing all of this in our passage. And we see it first in simply how Jesus gives hope to the people in our passage. As both Jairus and the woman both seek out healing from Jesus, they are both at the end of their hope. But there's something in them that is holding out that somehow, just, just maybe, Jesus might be able to help. Something about Jesus is giving them just enough hope to keep going, to seek Him out. Jairus shouldn't be going to some itinerant preacher for help, especially one who sometimes is referred to as the Messiah. Jairus should be going to the synagogue. And yet, we can only imagine he already has. And so now we find him coming to the unlikeliest of persons, this, this rabbi. The woman clearly has already put her hope in so many over the past 12 years, and things have only gotten worse, to the point where you have to ask, why try again? Except there's this Jesus, and there's just something about him that seems different, that gives hope again. Of course, we have to be careful here, because what's tricky about all of this, when we talk about hope, is that hope sometimes becomes more like wishing, where there's just something out there that we want, but we don't have much control or any chance of obtaining it. But here's what I find fascinating in how Jesus engages with them. Because I think he points us towards the much more powerful hope. You see, the difference between wishing and hoping is that a wish is found in a what. And a hope is found in a who. Prior to Jesus, they were wishing that their kid would be okay, or that they'd be healed, or that everything would just turn out all right. But the true power of this passage and the deep reality of hope is that we don't put our hope in the desire or in the outcome. We put our hope in a person. We put our hope in Jesus, which makes all the difference. Because while wishes do sometimes come true, most of the times they don't. And therefore, when we put our hope in a wish, there's a good chance that we end up disappointed because it's hard to get the outcome we think we want. But if instead we put our hope in Jesus, in who He is, in His sovereignty, in His present and coming kingdom, well, that, that starts to be different. 
Because this kind of hope doesn't disappoint because He is with us no matter what. Now, to be clear, that doesn't necessarily mean that you then get what you're wishing for. This isn't a means to an end. I'll put my hope in Jesus so that my outcome becomes my reality. That's just more wishing. But putting our hope in Him is a way of trusting Him and learning that He is with us no matter what, through it all. Maybe this is why Jesus stops to encounter the woman. Because you'll notice, He doesn't need to. She's already been healed. His work here is done. But notice, her healing wasn't because of her faith in the outcome. Instead, her much deeper healing was found in who He is. But that's not all, because... Jesus does something else here, too. He holds on to hope on their behalf. And I think we see this the most powerfully in, this, in the Jairus part of this story. We can only imagine what Jairus is feeling when Jesus starts to come with him, but then all of a sudden, Jesus just stops. He's working his way through the crowd, and all of a sudden, he just stops, and he starts looking around for someone. Even the disciples are confused and a little bit embarrassed. And then Jesus starts having this conversation with this woman. And if you're Jairus, you're terrified, you're frustrated, you're exhausted, you're grieving, you're angry. What about me? And then there's this moment. It happens right after Jairus hears the most heart-wrenching news possible about his daughter. And I love this moment because this is the moment that Jesus seems to hold on to hope for Jairus. You can almost see Jesus picking up the downcast face of the devastated Jairus, refocusing him back on Jesus. Because hope isn't found in what, it's found in who. And while Jairus doesn't have any hope left, Jesus does. And Jesus seems to be hope for Jairus. I wonder where you put your hope. I wonder if there are times when Jesus needs to refocus our attention back toward Him. I wonder if our hope ever gets so caught up in the outcome or the desire that we lose sight of our deeper needs, the one who is with us. What's more, let's recognize that this is incredibly hard in the best of circumstances. And when we've lost hope, clearly that's not the best of circumstances. But we need to learn how to look more toward and find our hope in Him. Learning to look towards God who is still in charge, who is still telling His story, who is still loving us, and who is with us and will continue to be with us no matter what. Maybe this is why our hope in who is so much stronger than our hope in a what. Because outcomes come and go, good and bad alike. But when we find our hope in Him, we remember it's because He is faithful. And it's because He is with us. And it's because He has promised He will never leave us nor forsake us. But you see, that's just the good news. 
Remember, our real calling is to become better disciples, which means that this hope-giving and this hope-holding is now our job too. Of course, the hope we give isn't in the what. It's not in the desire. It's not in some outcome. It's in the fact that Jesus is with us in it, through it. And what's more, this is the hope that we hold on to for others. We allow them to hold on to us while we hold on to God. And in this, we become more like Jesus. We become a people of hope. As Jesus does His work in us and with us and through us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that You are a God of hope. We thank You that You are with us no matter what. And we pray for those even today who need Your hope, not in an outcome, but in a person, in who You are and in the promises You give. But Lord, also as we think beyond just ourselves, we recognize that there are others around us who also need hope. And we pray that we can be the kind of people who bring your hope to them, that we might hold hope for them, that we might show them that you are with them no matter what, that you are with us no matter what. We pray that as we see hope differently, that we would experience your hope differently. And we thank you that you are a God who is with us through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.